This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Hello, listener. Part of this episode was recorded before my discussion with Scott Dorwood, and some of it was recorded afterwards. That's why there might be a sense of some overlapping ideas and concepts. Uh, Just bear with me. Anyway, this content here is the leftovers from the previous King in Yellow episode. Originally, I was going to make it into a single episode, and then there was so much content that I decided I had to split it into two. Here we go. This is the third episode in a discussion on secondary worlds existing as fiction within a fictional primary world. To recap, previously I've covered Lev Grossman's The Magicians and Jonathan Carroll's Land of Loves, and that was a while ago. Since then, um, a few things have happened in the podcastosphere. Podcastosphere, is that a thing? Um, notably, the good friends of Jackson and Elias have covered the King in Yellow, its influences and themes in several episodes, and I think there's more to come. I, I recommend that as it's much more thoroughly researched concerning Chambers' wider works, um, the context of the time and the later writers influenced by Chambers. The other thing that happened is I recorded a three-part episode concerning Clive Barker's Imagica, and in the second part I go into portal fantasy quite a bit. That's particularly relevant to The Magicians, but it's also a topic that feeds into this one. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a brief overview of the four stories from The King in Yellow. Uh, But if you want something a bit more in-depth, I once again commend you to go and listen to The Good Friends of Jess and Elias. After that, I'll discuss the themes here and how they contrast with the two earlier examples. And then, as usual, there's a role-playing bit. Part 1. Plot and Setting The first story, The Repairer of Reputations, is my favourite of the four, mainly for its scope. It concerns an imagined future in the 1920s of of North American prosperity against a backdrop of European war and a general air of xenophobia, and where suicide has recently been legalised and suicide chambers, or lethal chambers, have been installed or are to be installed in every city and town. And several scenes are located near the lethal chamber in Washington Square. The narrator is Hildred Castain, recently discharged from psychiatric care, cousin to Louis and admirer of Constance Horburg, daughter of an armourer, friend of the titular repairer of reputations, Mr Wilde, reader of the play The King in Yellow, and apparently heir to the imperial dynasty of America, a secret lineage connected with the tattered king. He learns about the dynasty from the fantastically well-informed Mr. Wilde, who apparently has spies everywhere to pursue his craft of repairing reputations. Hildred has even affected the wearing of a crown and robe, imagining himself as the future monarch, and to further his plans, he anticipates the assassination of his former doctor, the armourer Horburg, and his daughter Constance. This is apparently thwarted by the authorities, and he is apprehended and dies in an asylum shortly after. So there's some question about whether this false 1920s is a delusion or if it's actually a true reality and uh, a prescient one for that as far as Chambers was writing. The second story, The Mask, concerns our narrator Alec, his friend Boris, who has discovered an alchemical formula that will transform organic tissues into marble, and Genevieve, the love interest between the two. The story initially presents as a romance, but quickly becomes a weird fiction after Genevieve falls ill with a mystery ailment, and Alec reads some of the key in yellow, and also succumbs to a mystery illness, the inference being that Genevieve's reading of the play preceded his own. While Alec hallucinates the strange sight of the Lake of Harley and Carcosa's towers, Genevieve apparently takes her life by plunging into a pool of Boris's alchemical formula, which renders her a statue. 
Inconsolable, Boris shoots himself through the heart. Alec is made heir of Genevieve's estate, and after some time travelling abroad, he returns to find that the solution's effect is only temporary, and the creatures previously turned to marble, including Genevieve, have returned to life. Now, there's some suggestion this could be wishful thinking, but I like to take it at face value. Now, there are three very notable linkages between this story and the last, aside from the play, obviously. There are the statues of the fates that Boris is labouring on, which previously adorned the lethal chamber. There is the motif of ancient armour, which was Horberg's stock in trade, and uh, it was a complex and rather arcane activity. And there's Genevieve's apparent suicide, which is very similar to the character Vance in the previous story, who, after being tasked with assassinating Horberg and his daughter, runs into the lethal chamber towards the end of the story. The inference is that, rather than remorse, Vance was driven to take his own life for the same reason as Genevieve, that somehow he was plagued by the King in Yellow. The third story, in the Court of the Dragon, concerns the narrators attending a religious service at the Church of St Barnaby. They've been upset for the past three nights from reading the King in Yellow, and the rendition from the organist disquiets them. They then see the pale organist, thin and black clad, leave the church twice in what seems to be deja vu and on the second time the organist looks at them with an expression of pure malice and hate. They then flee home through Paris to the Court of the Dragon, a residential, air quotes, en passe, that can only be accessed on foot, apparently being pursued by this individual, who finally confronts them at the gates to the residency. Suddenly they wake up and believe that they have slept through the sermon and suffered a terrible dream of being persecuted by this strange and unknown assailant. But then they hear the organist again, and suddenly they're blinded by a, a light, possibly a, a figurative light or a literal light, uh, turns the ceiling to black stars and supposedly brings them face to face with the tattered king. And this story's connection to the previous is the description of the Court of the Dragon, where the ground floors are occupied by shops of second-hand dealers and by iron workers. All day long the place rings with the clink of hammers and the clang of metal bars. The allusion is to the shops in the first story and the practice of mending armour. Finally, we have the last story, The Yellow Sign, where an artist and his model are haunted by an undead watchman who asks him if he's found the yellow sign. And later, his model, who is romantically interested in him, gives him a lapel pin with that very sign on it. Upon a reading of The King in Yellow, she is overcome in the same manner as Genevieve from The Mask, and in turn, he reads it also, and they share their thoughts on the play's content before the undead watchman comes for the yellow sign, slaying her, apparently causing her spirit to simply flee from her body, and striking the artist a blow that seems to, um, for want of a better word, infect him with a plague or, or a, an inhuman malady. When the three are found, there are two corpses and the narrator is dying, dramatically passing in mid-sentence. As well as the effect of the book, there's a very similar recounting of the terrible organist in the church next door to the artist's studio. Additionally, Washington Square makes a repeat appearance. Part 2, Themes and Images So, that was a quick whistle-stop tour of the four stories and their content and their linking ideas. I haven't really gone into them in much detail, and that's not really the point. What I want to do is now to talk about the themes, and particular the themes with reference to this idea of fictional secondary worlds within a fictional primary world. Now, previously we covered Fillory in The Magicians as a, as a fictional secondary world within the primary world, and this is an example of portal fantasy, where the characters step through a portal and find themselves in a new world with different rules. But it's also a world that's left a fictional or legendary imprint on the fictional primary world. Now, the, the backstory of the magicians, of course, is that 
they were actually the um, the recounted adventures of the uh, Chatwin children by Christopher Plover. Secondly, there's this um, there's the Land of Laughs, which is a, a low fantasy where the fictional secondary world has bled into the primary world, and the existence of the secondary world characters is dependent on a, a real-world anchor, Marshal France. Um, but with France dead, things are up in the air, and all the fictional world has to go by is France's diaries. And the imagined world is constrained by geography, as the inhabitants of Galen can't go far from their town without sickening and dying. So... The question is, where does the keen yellow sit between these two? What's similar and what's different? Well, quite a bit. The first main thing I want to talk about is the concept of false documents. And I'd not heard of false documents before, but on the wiki page for the repair of reputations, the play, The King in Yellow, is referred to as a false document. And this is a literary device that sounds like a credible real-world document to lend verisimilitude to the story. You might wonder if the Marshal France books in The Land of Laughs are false documents, or the Fillory books in The Magicians. I'm not sure. Uh, my gut says that they are definitely different. Um, the thing about The King in Yellow is that it's a widely recognised artefact that a lot of people in the world have an opinion on. People in the world widely recognise it and accept it, that it is there, that it has it is regarded as a piece of art by a lot of people. And it provokes an emotional and intellectual response. And it's a, a dressing for this fictional world which Chambers has embellished with a future history that includes suicide chambers and North American supremacy. By extension, there's a question, is Wilde's imperial dynasty a false document? And I think this is less certain because it only has two people in contact with it, uh, Hildred Castain and Mr. Wilde, and the two of them occupy a sort of self-contained world that's partitioned from the wider world. The Imperial Dynasty is more like a, a sort of grimoire or tome of secrets in that regard. And of course, Castain and, and Wilde are not particularly reliable. Of course, the primary thing I want to focus on is the fiction within the fiction and how it bleeds into the primary world. Uh, and in this case, the play is regarded as a contagion that spreads with some authorities attempting to arrest it by banning or, or burning the books. But of course, it always finds a way. Humans are the vector here, just as the play might be considered a vector for madness. Humans are the vector for the illness. So how and why are they disseminating the play if it's so dangerous? The first group who'll be passing this play around are the ignorants who don't really appreciate what the book does, and they just share it for a laugh. It's probably a bit like Mao's Little Red Book being shared amongst students in the 60s, according to my mum, who, who actually did that. Um, something a bit countercultural and daring, uh, but ultimately not of a great consequence. But there's a second group, and they're the ones who really do understand what it does, or at least they think they do. And they've built up a cult around its inherent mysticism and its meaning, which they've probably divined, distilled, passed on through oral tradition, possibly written secret essays on the subject, and, and so on. They may be full-on cultists, although I'd prefer to see them as more human. You know, a, a bunch of geeks or obsessives who preserve this stuff because they're, they're just really well into the fandom. And then there's a third category who don't really share the book, but they can't bring themselves to destroy it. Let's say they believe it should be available on the principle because it's art, and that there are 
some hints and comments about the artistic merits of the play having been debated and, and generally agreed that it, it is a work of art. But let's say that this is a collection of government and private curators, uh, promoters and so on. Some of them might be promoting the book, not having even read it, but because the scandal around it is a means to an end. Maybe it goes in line with their public persona of being you know, mad, bad and dangerous to know. So there's a secondary social effect going on regarding the subculture created by the book and the desire to belong to that subculture, whether or not you understand it or not. So when we talk about how the secondary world bleeds into the primary, it's not just a portal to another dimension that allows Haster, uh, Keen, Yellow, whatever, to enter the individual consciousness and drive the reader mad. It's a world-spanning conspiracy of layered meaning, and at least some of it will be perverted by interpretation. There's the potential for entire groups to have made one interpretation that's at odds with the others. Which is how you get some people thinking it's entirely harmless and others knowing it's anything but. Because they have completely different perspectives on what it actually is saying. Now, taking this further, because it's a, a late 19th century text, we, we assume that there is one single version which is transcribed verbatim. Who by? Not sure. But of course, you've got potential for transcription errors, translation errors, missing pages due to misprinting, and, and so on and so forth. So to sum up, if you're going to insert the key in yellow into a primary world, then you will have a fandom around it, which will be based on fragmented knowledge and secondary interpretations. Think about what that means in the context of, of today. We're saturated with fandom, wikis, uh, blending of cultures, uh, to the extent that we even discuss which fictional worlds touch on which others. And by that, I mean that the, there's a there's the, um, I think it's Tommy Westfall theory from Sind Elsewhere that, that connects something like 400 different TV shows together. So there's an argument that all of those TV shows occupy the same universe and same fandom. Let's say your modern world has a complete fandom for the King in Yellow, and somehow that fandom links to every other fandom. The play then connects with every other fandom in existence. There is no part of popular fictional culture that is not infected by the King in Yellow. The conspiracy is complete. Maybe there's a resistance that exists to create new fiction, entirely separate from the infection. Maybe they do this by creating a sort of mimetic clean room. Maybe it's a way of rebuilding neural pathways that exclude the psychic infection. Maybe they access a different part of the brain as a way of protecting themselves from the madness that's caused by the key in yellow. It's a fictional motif that we find in Joss Whedon's Dollhouse or Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which, by the way, will be coming up in an episode soon. My final thought on this is, what if the king has done this before? What if this is how it takes over entire worlds and civilizations by inserting itself into popular culture until it touches every part of that culture's fiction, and therefore every mind? I mean, I can't think of the king in yellow wanting to take over the world or destroy it. Why would it want to do that? But clearly the play is a vector and it's been created for that purpose. What the King, I think, really wants to do is to touch minds. Grant Morrison uh, did a six-issue run of Marvel Boy, one of the several iterations of Captain Marvel, I, I believe. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, and it features a sort of um, uh, an intelligent corporation. So the, the idea is that um, 
the, uh, the this Kree slip ship is travelling back through multiple realities, and, and it, it basically travels through multiple versions of, of the universe until it gets to its destination. A bit like an infinite improbability drive, come to think of it. Uh, and it's got all these dangerous, these really, really dangerous um, weapons in its hold that probably shouldn't be holding, uh, probably shouldn't be falling into the hands of the human race. And one of these weapons is an intelligent corporation that basically finds a planet, establishes its brand, and consumes every available resource on the planet whilst building spacefaring technology, so it can then travel to other worlds and do the same. It is this organism that to all intents and purposes, appears to be just another corporation and it prompts humans to consume. What it's really doing is consuming itself. Grant Morrison actually has a thing about civilization being an infection. Um, there's a concept in the early Invisibles um, that cities are a sickness that infects the planet. Uh, that's uh, That appears very early on when um, Dane is going through his magical initiation with Tom Bedlam. The last thing I want to talk about then is connected worlds. And this is more of a comment than a theme. And it's it's the argument about whether these four stories exist in the same reality or even are the same reality. There's a, a deliberate effort on Chambers' part to link the four stories together through the following motifs. There's the statues of the fates. There's armour and metalwork. Uh, dissonant and frightening music. Despair and suicide. And then there's the location of Washington Square. Now, Together with the emphasis on dreams of the King in Yellow, it puts me in mind that all of these are the reflections of the same place. Perhaps they are actually hallucinations suffered by the victims of the King in Yellow, transported to Carcosa by the book and trapped in a nightmarish version of Earth. Carcosa doesn't bleed into their reality, rather the mask slips from time to time, revealing their true surroundings. So it's a very Gnostic view uh, and I think it's that similar to for example the game Cult and also it puts me in mind of Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart and the Le Marchand's box the Lament configuration and the variations of it and the reason I'm put in mind of that in particular well there's a couple one is solving the puzzle box like reading the play is both voluntary and a compulsion and another reason is that there's this suggestion that the, the nightmare world that those who are foolish enough to solve the box go to is a is a kind of connected to our world and next to it. And indeed, certain parts of it appear to be like our world in a sort of mockery or parody. So uh, you'll see rooms which uh, where the um, plasterboard has gone back to the laths and uh, light pokes through it. So you're not sure if that's in the world of the Cenobites or still in our world and there's just something outside shining through. Very memorable scenes when Frank solves that and, and the lighting changes and you're not sure if he's actually shifted or not. And you're not sure if his torments include some kind of masquerade concerning the reality of the world that he's in i think there's a certain amount of um, mapping hell in the second one where they get to certain parts at certain rooms that look like the real world when kirsty is trying to find a way out part three the role-playing bit Well now, time for the role-playing bit. Now, I had several ideas, but I'm just going to talk about the one I like best, which is a LARP, basically. And I'm thinking about the themes of both 
fictional intrusion into a real world. And also the idea that uh, The King in Yellow is a, a widespread and recognised text. And for most people, it just forms part of the background of the world that they live in. You know, it's, it's not the focus of their lives. They're just aware that there is this awful, scandalous text out there and people have read it. And, you know, it's not certain exactly what it does. Mostly, it's, it's pretty ambiguous. And, and as I say, it's out there in the background. So to do a LARP, I was thinking not just to have a King in Yellow LARP itself, but to have the King in Yellow section as a layer on top of a different LARP. Now, you can get any number of murder mystery games, freeform games, um, and a lot of them are set in a historical time period, you know, present day or the 1970s or whatever, but essentially on Earth in a setting that can be immediately appreciated by the players. And that's one of the one of the ways that, uh, for example, the Freeform Games Company works. It's that they have recognisable tropes and the party who are just rocking up to play the game that evening can instantly get it and get into the game without a lot of prep. I think, um, yeah, as a side, I think that that's what a lot of role-playing games need is something that the, play- that the players can instantly grasp. But anyway, I digress a bit. We're going to have the key in yellow as a layer on top of a uh, commercial or homebrewed murder mystery set in, in a historical time period on Earth, say, you know, choose the 1920s, the 1970s, present day, whatever you like. And you're going to add one additional fact to the background, which is that the king in yellow is a play, it is known about, uh, it is distributed, and various people have different opinions about it, whether it's dangerous or just a a fad or um, poorly understood or an artistic masterpiece or whatever. People people are aware that it's out there. So to add the layer on top of everything, what we're going to have is a bingo card. And and each square of the bingo card, or or these squares of the bingo cards, which get filled in, will have a particular kind of um, message in them. A a particular part of the play itself, you know, a line from Casilda's song, or a concept like the the Aldebaran and the Hyades, or something like that. Just uh, something with a a couple of keywords that are recognisable. And accompanying this, you create a deck of cards with the concepts of the King in Yellow in them. And these have keywords on them. Now, the goal is that you seed these amongst the players. Some of the players say about a quarter to a third of them, so that you get a good number of cards out there in the play space, but only a minority actually have them at the start. And it's the goal of the characters who hold these cards to communicate the ideas to other people and all they do is they hold another character in conversation and when they can they slip the keyword into the conversation at that point they are deemed to have communicated some fundamental truth to the other person they hand over the card and the other person crosses that concept out on their bingo card I should say that the people who originally distributed the cards will obviously already have crossed out that part of their bingo card Now, as you go through the game, you're going to start to propagate these ideas through the various groups. And the hope I have is that the characters will talk more and more about the King in Yellow, as well as the other things that they're trying to achieve. And maybe it will will dominate the conversation, or maybe it'll just be in a minority of conversations. But over time, characters will acquire more crosses on their bingo card, At the point where a character's 
scores a line on their bingo card, they alert the GM, and I recommend that you have an extra referee set aside just for this part, this part of the LARP. So they alert the GM, and that triggers a couple of things. One is it triggers an in-game event, say they have a vision, or somebody goes mad, or uh, someone mysterious arrives, or someone is possessed, or um, uh, a something strange is narrated, like you know, a plague of rats fills the place, or somebody is glimpsed from outside watching in, or something like that. That triggers the event, and at the same time, the person who triggered the event is handed a new card. This is a next-level card, so the set of cards that were distributed at the start of the game, they're relatively innocuous. They are the Act 1 of the King in Yellow, and they're kind of relatively harmless in and of themselves. But the next card that gets distributed is kind of the next level up. This is the introduction to Act 2, or however you like to put it. You're seeding the next level ideas. These will then fill in new regions of the bingo card when they're communicated that previously were dormant. And as more of these get fed into the play space, you know, that the general level of information goes up. And this then triggers the next level of events. Once these are triggered, then you, you start to get into an endgame scenario where the, the final and most awful secrets are communicated. And as they're communicated, you know, the, the actual consequence of reading these is then fully understood. And you can have, you know, your, your characters actually coming to terrible fates and unexpected ones, you know, in the middle of your 1920s scenario, which is ostensibly a, a murder mystery and, and something about um, politics. Um, somebody takes their own life or uh, somebody attacks someone else or drops down dead or, or something like that. Now, um, if that excludes a character from the game, which you know sometimes that sort of thing does, that's not too bad because the idea of this pacing mechanic is the really awful things will happen towards the end of the game. But I think there is a reasonable objection to killing players in LARPs and then forcing them to sit out the rest of the LARP. So the other thing I'd like to introduce is the notion of ghosts or echoes or whatever. I played in a LARP, or more than one actually, where I'm, you probably, if you've played it, you know the whole idea of finger in the air. I'm not really here, I'm just listening. And the GMs use it and certain people use it all the time. I've played in games where I was an actual character who was invisible and therefore I had fingers in the air. I was playing an angel. And the great thing about that is you can crowd out the, sp the play space and you can be a presence in the area without actually interfering too much and you can still be an observer and I like the idea of uh, if a character is taken out of the play space because they go mad or something then they still have that opportunity to interact so I'm not sure what to call this I, I guess um, Carcosan bingo is one way of calling it but that kind of trivializes the concept the best outcome I could hope from this is that the base murder mystery or, or whatever it is gets played through as expected and people have a good time. But the, the, the key in yellow is kind of a bit of seasoning on the side and it's a side thing for people to explore but also be wary of. Um, it would be really great if people picked up on the fact that the king in yellow was out there and was a threat to their characters and actually it affected the kinds of conversations they had with other people. And thinking back to the discussion with Scott, there's this idea that you know the reading the play is suddenly it's a it's a point of no return and it's it's a very sudden change and end to your character. 
I feel in this case where you have the, what's important is you're not actually changing anything until the end game where something terrible happens to somebody, but you are ramping up the threat as people know more and more as they fill in their cards. So there's a certain amount of effort going to be involved, and obviously the bingo cards and the cards themselves, they have to be categorized in terms of the severity of their impact. And then um, the biggest design challenge will actually just be assembling the bingo card to make sure that the events reveal themselves in a reasonable, if random, order. And you don't immediately skip to something really shocking. Although I, I don't have a big objection to that either, and particularly if you have the safety net of not excluding a player from the play, even after their character is done in, um, I think that that could be tolerable. But um, it's obviously, it's actually quite an interesting mathematical, technical challenge. And obviously it needs playtesting to see how badly it intrudes on the base game. But intrusion is what I want to achieve. I want to get this idea that actually the king in yellow is an intruding, invading force in the culture that is otherwise recognisable and apparently safe. The simpler bits to do will obviously be the what happens at the intrusion points when somebody fills in a line of the bingo, and that, that's quite easy to do. The, the whole weird and wacky, somebody's going mad, or, or um, there's a plague of rats suddenly, or there's a, a strange noise is heard, or something like that. Th those, are, those are easy to do and fairly fun. Does it sound cool? I'd be interested to hear your feedback, so I'm open to comments about this. I'd also be interested in what you would do if you were layering one LARP upon another. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, it'd be great if you could like, share, review, subscribe, or just comment. Music for the podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Check the show notes. Bye. Bye.